This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. And welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman, and this is the Sunday Roundup. This week, each political party has been managing expectations ahead of the imminent local elections. The Secretary of State for Transport, Mark Harper, reiterated the worst case prediction that the Conservatives could lose up to a thousand seats. But Keir Starmer told Sophie Ridge he thought the Conservatives should be making significant gains, given their result in the last local elections in 2019 was their second worst ever. Well, seriously saying the Conservatives should be making significant gains right well, now. Well, in, in 2019, that was their second worst set of results ever. And Theresa May, I mean, as I say, apologised to the candidate. I think three weeks later, she was challenged for the leadership resigned and that was it was effectively those results which I mean the Conservatives the are saying we should be expecting a thousand losses well if they are I find that astonishing if they're saying that uh, they're going to go below their second worst set of results in these elections then um, they truly are going backwards but that I think is just expectation management on their part they ought to be made, making gains significant gains the base law baseline for them is on the floor um, and so this will raise questions about whether they're going backwards, in fact. Mark Harper was questioned by Laura Koonsberg over his record with the HS2 rail project, which has been plagued by soaring costs and delays. She asked whether the railway would end up being only a fraction of what was originally planned, but Harper insisted the government was still committed to connecting Manchester to central London. Now, I want to show you and viewers this morning what HS2 was originally going to look like. I think we can show the original planned route. Look at all those phases stretching right across the country. But then this happens. That bit disappears. That bit disappears or is delayed. And essentially, the line now, as predicted, is going to be a fraction of what it was expected to be. Maybe not even getting into central London. Old Oak Common, a place in West London that lots of our viewers have probably never heard of, might be the end of this multi-billion pound railway line. Are you a bit embarrassed when you look at that map, what that was meant to be and what it's ending up as? Well, no, because that isn't what it's ending up as. People can see there it says phase one. That mm -hmm. is phase one. We haven't resolved from the, the next part. So we've committed to delivering mm -hmm. it from Manchester to Euston. Mm -hmm. What I've had to do is... Years and years uh, well, and years later than promised. What I've had to do is to make some sensible decisions given the level of inflation about making sure we balance the cost of a taxpayer about getting it delivered. Phase one, which is in construction at the moment, and anyone that goes and has a look at Birmingham, for example, they can see all the development around Curzon Street Station making a massive impact, a positive impact on the economy. There are tens of thousands of people working on it. That piece of it, we wanted to act, keep going as fast as but possible to get it constructed. this was meant to soon we've reach had, well, right across much we've of We've had England. to attempt to slow down by two years... Um, the middle section of it, and then we're back on track again on the piece to Manchester. Um, so you have to balance these things, but we're very committed to it, not just for delivering high-speed rail, but what it also does is frees up capacity on the West Coast Main Line, enabling better passenger services on that line, and importantly, more freight services to get freight off of our roads and onto trains, which is better for our net zero and decarbonisation targets. And can you, as the Transport Secretary today, guarantee that this line 
will actually go all the way to London Euston, even if it takes until 2041. Yeah, which yeah we, we've committed to doing that. But look, we are looking at the design for Euston Station again. The design that was on the table was too expensive. And one of the things I've got to do is deliver great infrastructure. Well, that sounds like a yes, of the cost of the taxpayer. No, it's a yes. It is going to go from Euston to Manchester. And we've said that the Euston Station to Old Oak Common Piece will open at the same time as the route through to Manchester. That's when you need the capacity and that's what we've committed to doing and by both what year? the Prime Minister and the Chancellor and myself have made that very clear. By what year? Well it means it's delayed by a couple of years from its original in-service date. We haven't set out a precise date yet. We're going back through the design work but the commitment for running the line from Euston to Manchester is there from the Prime Minister down. And with rent prices soaring, Green Party co-leader Adrian Ramsey told Koonsberg that a freeze on rents was necessary to deal with the crisis. But Labour's campaign coordinator Shabana Mahmood insisted that freezing rent would only be a temporary help and that her party's plan to prioritise the building of new homes was the only way to fix the problem long term. Right now, we know, we know from our emails we get to this programme and we all know from people that we know, friends and family, rents are increasingly unaffordable. A simple policy that lots of people in your party are quite interested in, including the London Mayor and the Scottish Labour leader, think freeze rents, do it now, people can't manage, why not? A better policy that would actually get to the heart of the problem that we're trying to fix will be building homes, making sure that there is the housing supply in place and then making sure that the people who need to buy those homes, particularly first-time buyers and local people get first dibs, have the chance to get on the housing ladder. In the end, that is the way to fix the problem because the problem is structural and it's deep and it's long-lasting and it has existed for many years and that is fundamentally the only way around the problem. Everything else is a tweak to the system that might be a good temporary measure but it won't get to the heart of the problem. But all of those things though that you're talking about and, you, and you're, many people would say there are deep long-running problems in the housing market but all of the things you're talking about would take time. So essentially what you're saying to people is a Labour government wouldn't give immediate help to people who can't pay their rent at the moment. Well, a, a Labour government would immediately prioritise actually tackling the cost of living crisis and all the other things that are put, putting pressure on the household budget, uh, which are making life difficult for renters and for homeowners, uh, full stop. But ultimately, we will prioritise making the changes to the national planning framework and also our housing market to make sure we deal with the problem at source. Koonsberg asked Adrian Ramsey whether examples of the Green Party opposing local solar initiatives showed some double standards. Ramsey said that you needed to look at the full impact of each proposal and was adamant that his party was fully behind more renewable energy of all kinds. When it talks about you know, making the case for being more environmentally friendly and taking mm. bold steps on green energy, of course, your party's called for that kind of thing for a very long time. We've taken a look and found actually that very often when it comes to solar farms, the Green Party have locally taken a position against them. So that's just a double standard, isn't it? Nationally, you're saying we must have this kind of green energy, but then locally actually don't like the look of it in my community. I think you'd struggle to find many examples of that. The Green well, I've got, Party. I've got three the, of them here. I've got oh, Rutland, okay. Hastings, Derbyshire, Green Councillors saying, no, we don't fancy it. Thanks very much. We're very clear that we want to see more types of all renewable energy around the country. Yes, of course, in any one example of a, a, a local 
proposal, you need to look at the full impact. Is it adding to biodiversity in the area? Is it part of the range of mix of renewables that we need to add? And I know lots of examples where Greens are working very actively on things like community-owned renewable energy, where the community really benefits from the financial return as well as the environmental return back into their community. And then you get really strong community support for these initiatives. Mm -hmm. But it's not just about what's happening at a local level. The government has got to really step up the amount of renewable energy we're producing of all types, whether mm -hmm. it's offshore wind, wind, lifting the band on onshore wind, far more tidal power, and measures to reduce our energy use through things like insulating homes that will keep people's bills down, will help address the energy crisis, because of course, renewable energy is the cheapest form of producing energy these days. Mm -hmm. So why is the government focusing on new oil and gas licenses, which will wreck the climate and push people's bills up? And finally, AI continues to create hot debates with government tech advisor Matt Clifford telling Koonsberg that the vast potential of AI was both exciting and frightening. A new government AI task force was announced this week to invest in the country's capabilities in this space. But Clifford said more investment was needed in technology to make AI safe. One thing also we've talked about here um, is artificial intelligence and both its huge opportunity, but also its big risks. And a tech billionaire, um, Jan Talon, told us a couple of weeks ago that he genuinely believes that the path of very high-end AI might actually end up sort of destroying humanity. Now, you talk to the people who run these AI labs. Can you tell us, when they speak to you, should we feel reassured or should we actually be frightened by the potential if this all goes wrong? Well, I think it's genuinely both. And I think, I think there's some, some good news there, so, uh, as, well, as well as some real risks. So absolutely, the people who run these labs are trying to build probably the most powerful technology in the history of our species. They're trying to build uh, technology that will effectively be able to automate you know, all cognitive labor and you know, be better than humans at everything humans do. And if that doesn't excite you a little bit and terrify you a little bit, then there's, there's probably something wrong with you. Now, the, the real <laughs> challenge is that um, we are advancing the capabilities of these systems faster than we're uh, advancing our ability to control them. Now, what does that require? Well, it requires investment on the control and the safety side. And mm -hmm. one of the other things I've been involved in is uh, the new AI task force that the government announced this week, which is really about the UK investing in its own capabilities in this space. And one is thing it I was adequate? Well, one thing I was really pleased about, um, and you know, I think that you know everyone should 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 see as an encouragement, is that right at the heart of that announcement was the idea of safe AI, the idea that the UK will be investing in safe, reliable, robust systems. And so, you know, I, I think there's a lot of talk at the moment about regulation. That's obviously an important part of the puzzle, but we must remember that that it's not actually on its own adequate. What we really need to do is invest in the technology to make mm -hmm. AI safe. That's all for this week. I'm Isabel Hardman and this podcast was produced by Joe Bidell Brill. Don't forget to subscribe to the Coffee House Shots podcast on the iTunes store. And if you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe to our daily evening blend email. It's a free roundup of all the political news each day, along with analysis and a diary on what to expect next. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash blend. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. <laughs>